What's up, everybody? This is Iron Mike Stedman, and as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, Dog Whistle Brandon. Today on DWB, I'm joined by Matt Handel, CMO at MCFA, a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business providing planning and strategy, program management, and construction management services to a wide variety of project types for the DOD, as well as other federal, state, and local agencies. MCFA was one of my first big clients at Ironbound Media, where we produced their show, Inspiring People and Places. Over the last year, my team and I have been working hand-in-hand with Matt to streamline the operations of the show and get the most out of the content. Matt is no stranger when it comes to content creation. He's well-known in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry, commonly referred to as AEC, for his website, Help Everybody Every Day, where he provides educational content to help some of the nation's leading AEC firms. If there's one underlying message that Matt stresses when it comes to marketing, it's the importance of having the right message for the right audience. It seems so simple, but so many of us get this wrong, which we dive into, as well as a variety of other topics, including Matt's background on today's show. Whether you're in the AEC industry or not, there's tons of value in our conversation. And as usual, I've already been talking too long, so Gunny, Take the reins. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding founder of Ironbound Media, and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes, or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com, to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper, and get ready to build a dog whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. Mr. Matt Handel, welcome to Dog Whistle Brand. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I've had a privilege of uh, hearing you talk on BJ's podcast, Inspiring People in Places. And then over the last, I would say, month or so, I've had a chance to work with you uh, on the podcast as you've come on board to be the CMO of uh, MCFA. So excited to have you here. And I, one of the things I think that you can bring a ton of value in, there's a lot of veterans in the construction and engineering space, right? And so I'm excited to learn more. Um, about how you approach marketing and, and branding and some of these like legacy spaces, you know, that aren't as necessarily like, I don't want to call it sexy, but just not as much pop and flair as like, you know, some tech startup or something else. You know, you talk to traditional business owners and you ask them about their marketing and branding. They're just like, oh, it's just old school blocking and tackling. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're right. There, there are a lot of people that were in the military um, that are in the construction industry. In fact, the majority of my professional life, I've, I've worked for people who were ex-military, whether that was West Point grads or people that got out of nuclear submarines or people that worked in the Naval, Naval Academy and then with the Army Corps of Engineers. So yeah, there is a lot of military people that, that enter the construction industry. There's also a lot of our uh, listeners who are vendors in that space too, you know, constantly working with CEOs to, you know, dial in their marketing and branding or, you know, one case, Eric Bakey, 
He does these visual, valuable conversations, you know, the cartoons and stuff yeah, that yeah, I yeah, utilize. Um, and so one, let's start by just kind of introducing yourself to our listeners and then your background, and how you got to where you are now. Okay. Well, my name is Matt Handel. Um, I'm known primarily for, for helping people win government contracts. I wrote one of the most popular books on developing proposals in the construction industry. It's called Proposal Development Secrets. I also published another book called The Magic of Winning Proposals that was written by one of my mentors, Laura Ricci. Um, you know, how I got into the construction industry is a long story, but the short version is that I never thought I was going to be in the construction industry. In fact, my father was in the construction industry and, and uh, before I was born, there was a fire at my house and luckily my mom got out alive because my dad was a carpenter by trade. And he said, you know what, I don't, I'm doing a renovation in the house. I don't need an electrician. I can just do that stuff myself. So he burnt the house to the ground and he was in the doghouse for, he was in the doghouse for, for quite a while for that. So I didn't think I was going to get in the construction industry. Uh, and I just kind of, much like many people do, I just kind of landed there. That's just kind of how I eventually landed. And first as a temp, I had a temp, I worked for a temp agency. And they, they put me at, at the spot. And, um, you know, the first thing you do is, is you work uh, on proposals and stuff like that. So I kind of got good at that. And I wrote about that. And I worked at different places. Uh, firms worked on some exciting projects. And that's the gist of it. That's the short version. What made you niche down and say, I'm going to help people win government contracts? Because that's a really tight kind of niche. You know, on the profession, when you're talking about the proposal process, because that's like something super specific. And one of the things I'm always encouraging our listeners to do is to really niche down. And a lot of them are scared to do so. But I know in like the construction space, right, like those proposals are super important. Extremely important. So it's funny that you think about niche, you know, like that's a, it's a small niche. Maybe there's not a whole lot of people do that, but you think about all the engineering firms and all the construction firms and all the architectural firms in the country, there's thousands upon thousands. Um, and let's assume, assume each one of them um, has one person that works on proposals. Of course, the firm that has, you know, 10,000 people have, probably have more than one. But let's just assume everybody has one. Well, that would mean there are more people that do what I do than there are dentists. Yet there are whole schools of dentistry. So, you know, there are a lot of these, what you would kind of perceive as niches that are really big industries. You know, it's get, you know, writing proposals is a big industry. There's a whole association for it. There's multiple associations really of, of people that do that. So it's, it's, it's kind of a big niche, you know, to some respect, um, but an important one. So I don't know if I answered your question or, or not on that. No, one. you did. It is an important one, though, because you start thinking about, though, like you said, you can have this entire firm and there's a bunch of people running around on payroll and stuff, et cetera. But none of it works if we don't get biz dev. And when you start looking and saying, OK, well, why are we not getting business? Right. And you start looking at the one process. You're like, what is our proposal process looking like? So that's like one of those specific things people can target. 
to increase their like ROI across the board? Yeah, I mean, you have to like, I try to keep it very simple. It, it all boils down to getting the right message in front, of, in front of an audience that can say yes. You need only need two things to sell anything. You need the right message and an audience that can say yes. And people try to overcomplicate it, but it really kind of breaks down to that. You know, and I see a lot of stuff like in our industry, there's, there's a, there's a uh, mentality about like, oh, it's all about relationships, right? What I do in my, my training practice, if, if you will, is I have to sell people through email. I never actually meet them, right? I just send them, send them emails and then I get them to click a button and spend $1,000 by clicking that button or $1,400 by clicking that button. You know, that's a pretty challenging thing to do, you know, but, but I've proved over and over again that it isn't really all about relationships. It has to do with the right message and an audience that can say yes. I did a whole podcast on like vitamins and painkillers and this idea that certain things are nice to have, you know, be right without it versus something that's like a pain, right? Like take my money right now. And it sounds like what you're talking about is like when you get the message in front of the right audience, right? It's a painkiller for a lot of people. And they've been actively like looking for a solution to the problem that you're solving. And if you can convey that uh, via an email, via proposal, or even like your marketing copy, right? That's super important for people. Absolutely. And I, I do believe, I, I totally agree with you about the whole pain points. You know, you have to figure out what it is people are buying. Because for example, I was at the gym today, right? And I, I, I'm, on, I'm working with a new trainer and I, I talked about, we got to figure out the metrics. What are the metrics to measure myself, right? Because what gets measured gets managed. So you have to measure. And he said, you know, my, the metric I like to use is how are you feeling, right? And I told him that's a stupid metric. That's the, a horrible metric because, you know, if I was, if I owned a coal mine, you know, my metric wouldn't be like, oh, how do I feel about the coal mine? It would be like, how much coal is coming out there? So measurement is ex extremely important and measuring things the right way is, is absolutely extremely important. So how do you equate that thinking about, you know, your work with proposal process, right? Like what is the ROI that your clients are looking for? Is it the direct business? Yes. Um, is it the money? And I saw on your LinkedIn, you said you've got construction firms, million of dollar, millions of dollars through your proposal process. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I've seen some in incredible things and, and, you know, the ROI, you know, when you're working on government contracts, you're gambling money, right? Because when you're submitting a proposal, it's not going to cost you $10 to submit a proposal. You're probably not a proposal of the magnitude that I work on. You're probably going to spend at least $3,000 to walk in the door. You know, um, you know, you're doing a couple hundred thousand dollar or a hundred million dollar proposal. You're talking, you know, 
maybe tens of thousands of dollars to spend on that proposal. I know people who have written proposals they delivered by helicopter because they were so big and complex. A friend of mine worked on a, on a proposal for the Triborough Tri Bridge. In, uh, no, it, wasn't, it was one of the bridges in New York. And they worked for full-time staff, worked for months on this proposal. And right before they were ready to submit it, they decided, oh, this is too risky for us. We're going to walk away from it. So they, they didn't even submit and they spent thousands upon thousands of dollars on that proposal. So we're gambling money and we have to make sure that the money we make is a lot more than the money we spent. So we're looking at ROI from the standpoint, I always look at it from the standpoint of what it costs me to submit versus how much money do I get back in contracts? And what, and what are the cost? elements that, that determine whether I'm going to get a good return on investment or a bad return on investment. So is this, is this in a sense of like the man hours and the time it takes to craft the proposal? Or it's like the contract that we're going in and how much it's going to cost us to deliver upon it? No, it's, 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 it's the first one. It's really how much time manpower is spent um, and expenses, you know, shipping and printing and, and all those kind of, re, I would say, those, those expenses those expenses, direct expenses to, to put that thing together. Um, and it's, it's usually a pretty significant effort. So how can someone, because, you know, just speaking of government contracts in general, that's a veteran space, right? And so how do you even build a brand around the proposal process to increase your chances of success? Is it just a crapshoot for everyone? Are they just responding to these RFPs, right? Because even on the nonprofit side of the house, I've applied to a lot of grants. And I haven't got them. And it took me a while before one of my friends said, Mike, did you know anybody on that board? Right? Did you like, do you have any relationships or something? Because you know, you see these things and you respond to it and you spend all this time drafting up this grant application, et cetera, and not to get it. And I think that's why people talk about the relationship play because it has been night and day when I have a relationship with someone I'm submitting this thing to, they're already on the lookout for it. They're letting other people know, hey, be on the lookout for this. And I'm curious to know, like, does that work the same in the government space? So let's go down a rabbit hole. All right. So let's talk about brand. Are you a, uh, uh, you're probably neither. But do you, when you're growing up, did you drink Coke or Pepsi? Uh, Coke. Okay. What's Coke's brand? I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a happy-go-lucky kind of brand. I just remember the, like, uh, Christmas time, right? The polar bears, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like... I don't know. I don't want to say legacy brand, but it's like the top of the food chain, basically. When you think about like Coca-Cola. It's hard to define, right? Uh, so think about the biggest firm in our industry is, is, is a firm called Jacobs. And if you've probably been in a building or a facility that Jacobs had some part in constructing, right? But nobody, you know, what's their brand? You can't tell. You really can't tell, you know? So it kind of goes back to, really, it's about the right message and an audience that can say yes. By the way, down a, go down another rabbit hole. Uh, Coca-Cola's brand is, they, you kind of got it partially right. They are like the classic 
family values. It's what your grandfather drinks. Where Pepsi is the choice of, you know, the choice of a new generation is for younger people. So older people are, are targeted by, by Coke. So Pepsi targets the younger people. And that's why you see the Pepsi ads. It's like the Kardashians. You have the Pepsi halftime show uh, with Michael Jackson, whoever the young, you know, the pop star of the day is. Uh, so, but when you look at our industry, it's like, I think there's, a, you know, people pay branding consultants, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars. And you still say like, okay, what's their brand? And maybe somebody in the, in the home uh, headquarters can articulate what their brand is, but the average person on the street or the average client just knows their name and can, uh, maybe identify their logo. So here's where brand comes into play. I know a lady who worked for a municipality where a lot of engineering firms submitted proposals to her. And every time she would get lots of proposals in for a contract, and she would put the proposals in two piles. One pile was what she determined was, these are the players. These are the firms that I know that can do this work. And the other pile went to what she called the circular bit file. Circular file is a trash can. Whether this is was right, ethical or not, that's what she did. She threw the ones that she couldn't recognize into the trash can and only looked at the ones that she felt were players in that space. So it's not really a brand thing. It's more of like a name rec recognition and a reputation thing, more, th more than what you would traditionally consider brand. But I'm gonna challenge you, right? See, I think the problem that my younger generation has is I think they've associated brand with the wrong thing. But I think brand is exactly what you said. It's like, how do people talk about you in the room? The simplest way is like, I know a guy. Like, it's the same thing you said, right message for the right audience. So if someone says, hey, I, you know, I need a new heavy bag in my gym, right? And I don't want to pay a lot of money. I know a guy. Talk to this person, right? Boom, that's their brand. That's kind of what they're known for. And I think one of the things I always stress my clients to is outside of all the fluff, like you said, the, the website and all that other stuff, it's like, who are you for? Like, what is your niche? And like, what separates you from all the competition? Like, why are you and your team the best position to solve this problem for this particular client? And that's where I stress in terms of branding. And that's where I came up with the concept behind dog whistle branding to distinguish it from, like you said, a lot of the other stuff. Because you can start a company right now with a website, product or service, and a strong, perfect customer to go after. And that's without all the logos and all the other stuff. That's with what you said the right message for the right audience. Yes. And I would also say that, that the audience, you really have to look at audiences as different entities with different designs. For example, you said, you know, if you needed a new heavy bag for, you know, a guy, right? I know a guy too for heavy bags. His name is Dix. I just go to Dick's Sporting Goods if I need that. But I'm, you know, even though I can beat you in a fight, a street fight, uh, you know, I was joking there. I'm like, come on. I, I try to get a smile out of you there. Um, even, even though uh, you have a different level of knowledge about the boxing world than I do. My kids wanted a, a, a punching bag. 
I go to Dick's. That's the only place I can think of. Maybe Models or something like that. Right. Um, where you know a guy. I don't, you know, so I had a different need. I just want something quick, easy. When you're buying a bag, you're buying something different than I'm buying, even though we're buying the same product. Correct. You got different motivations. One end might just be, oh, I'm just trying to work out, et cetera. Another one is me like, hey, I really need a nice bag for my gym. And it's just a different experience. But I do think this just comes in where you're right. It's like, what's the need of the customer? But then also, and this kind of goes back to what you and I were talking about MCFA of like, in these industries where almost everyone looks the same, it's like, how do you differentiate yourself from everyone else out there? What a lot of people, you know, don't do, it's kind of exactly what you're talking about. A lot of people, they fall in love with their service versus falling in love with their client, right? So they fall in love with saying, oh, we do landscape architecture, right? So, and, and we're the best, trust us, we're great, <laughs> you know? Uh, that happens so often. And I, and I do critique a lot of proposals and like that's the same kind of thing I see all the time. But nobody really does the work needed to figure out, okay, when I'm buying landscape architecture, what am I really buying, right? So when Mike is buying um, a punching bag, he's not really buying a punching bag, right? He's, he's buying something that's going to last with the kids, you know, that, in your, that are in your gym and working. And I don't know exactly what you're buying. When I'm buying a, a punching bag, I'm buying quick and I put it in my house. My kid's going to use it for a month and then do something, go on to something else. You know, right. this is something we're beating up on a while. It might be up there 10 years. Yeah. You never know. So that's yeah, the so, other thing. It's not a, just a, a quick toss away. So they don't do the, the you know, the time needed, to, the research needed to figure out what does that client need? So for example, if you're, it's my understanding when you're trying to get a grant, Right. Well, there's, there's people who are deciding upon the grants who have already kind of figured out what they already want to spend the money on. Right. So if you don't know what they already want to spend the money on, you're submitting idea A, but they've already decided they want to want idea C. Well, that's going to be a disconnect. So you're not going to get that grant. So you have to figure out what that they want. Does that mean you have to marry their daughter? No. Does that mean you have to take them out to the baseball team, baseball game? No. Do you have to hang out with them and, and have some beers at the bar? No. You just got to figure out what they need. I mean, I've been going to Dick's Sporting Goods for, for I get all my, the baseball equipment for the kids. They've never taken me. I have no relationship with them, with anybody there. They don't know my name. I just know that's the place to go to get a, get a punch bag or a baseball or, or whatever. Right. So there is no relationship there per se. Um, but, but I know to get stuff there and just, you know, you might have a relationship with the guy that, you know, I don't know if he goes to come to your house for Christmas or whatever, or it's just some guy, you know, right. right. And there's not really much of a relationship there other than I know he provides these, these bags and they're good. Right. So it all comes down to the right message audience can say yes. So my advice for anybody selling anything, whether it's through a proposal or a website or, or face-to-face, -face, is 
figuring out who's the audience that can truly say yes. Right? Because a lot of times you're talking to somebody, they're interested, but they're not really the person that can say yes. The person that can say yes is probably two steps above them, right? Or even two steps below them. But you also have to figure out what's what's the right message. Because maybe you're talking to this person who's not the right the audience that can say yes. Your message is really they're they're loving your message, but that's not the right message for the audience that can say yes. So you got to figure out okay, what's the right message for the audience that can say yes? And that kind of goes, you know, a lot into into psychology and and again the whole concept of when you're buying a drill, you're not buying a drill. You know, when I go to to the to Home Depot or whatever to buy a drill, I'm not really going there to buy a drill. You know, I'm going there to buy a hole. Uh, I just want the hole the easiest possible way I can. So you got to figure out what it is people truly want to buy. So I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Alan Weiss, right? The Million Dollar Consultant. And once he put me on, so he wrote Million Dollar Consultant. He's wrote all these books about consulting. And one of the things he talks about is just what you said, find the economic buyer. This is a person that has ability to cut the check. Like you said, not the gatekeeper, but that economic buyer. And a lot of times in our, in at least the small business world, it's the, the CEO, right? So when you're thinking about, and I like what you said too about the right message, because for me, and I'm gonna ask you this question, there's this growth hacking that's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Where everyone sends the same message, to the same people and they spam our inbox and they spam our email. But when you're dealing with multi-million dollar contracts, you're kind of playing at a higher level. I feel like that personal touch and that right message is super important. And I think sometimes when we're marketing, uh, creating our copy and stuff like that, like I think we're scared to personalize it. Like we're scared to really like get outside that growth hacker mindset and really create like a thoughtful uh, message, thoughtful copy to that economic buyer. Yeah, let me just kind of circle, trying to figure out a way to circle back around that. So the growth hacking thing is 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 been going on forever, right? And and a lot of so I was on a plane one time going to Austin, going to a music festival, and I was sitting next to a guy who was the drummer for I don't know if you're a music guy or not, but a drummer for a band called The Rents. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Reds, but he was telling me the story of they were going to get a record deal. So they were negotiating with the record company to get this record deal. That was going to be their big break, right? It's between them and another band. And here's what the record company said. They said, here's how it's going to work. We're going to sign you up. We're going to record your record. And then how records, how people make the charts is there's something called SoundScan where the stores scan the records and we collect that data and figure out you know, who made the top 10 or whatever. So what we're going to do is we are going to go send people out to these record stores and buy as many records as we can of your record, right? And that's going to get more people are going to realize that you're a big band, you're important, and they are using a psychology principle called social proof. They see somebody do something and, you know, like when I was a teenager, I saw Tim Gifford was wearing uh, his, his pants uh, kind of baggy down to his, you know, halfway down his butt. So I figured I was going to do that too. Cause my, cause I, cause it was social psychology. It, it, it's 
social proof. I'm doing what I see others do, right? When I'm undecided. So they didn't get the deal, but a band called Creed got that deal. And Creed Creed sold a lot of records and became a big band. But really how they became a big band was the record company bought those records. And that's how they got noticed. So there's a lot of this going on. And when you look at YouTube and you say, geez, how has this makeup tutorial got so many millions of views? You know, this really weird makeup tutorial. Like, do people really, that many people want to wear this makeup? They're, they're most likely buying views. And that's how they get to the top of the charts. And, and we have to be, you have to play your own game. You don't want to get, you know, see, uh, like you said, uh, there's so many people just blast emailing out, you know, it, they must, must work, right? Then why would they do that? But what happens is you see that and you say, oh, I want to do that too, because I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to see what other people are doing. I'm just going to do that. And you fall into that on many levels of the social proof, doing what other people are doing, right? Uh, and the kind of circle, circle back uh, around to that, um, the original question, hopefully, we, we just get caught into this idea of, of, of doing what other people do. So, that, so when you're sending blast spam emails, it's just spam. It's not really growth hacking per se. Yeah. You know, the people that are growth hacking are manipulating the system, which is why it's hacking to, to, to get the results they want to get. But, you know, you, in my opinion, you kind of have to play your game and, and go back to the right message audience that can say yes. That's a fair assessment about the social proof. Cause when I was writing my book and we did our crowdfunding campaign for it, they told us the first week was super important. Because if you raise a certain amount of money to cover your crowdfund, it gave other people social proof that like, hey, this mm-hmm. is something worth investing in. First, you launch this book and you got like $100, you know, and people are like, ah, we're good. So I do see that. And the same thing we talk about of like, that's why you share testimonials. That's why you do all that other stuff, because mm-hmm. it lets people know that like, hey, you're the real deal. Yeah. And I use that same concept in a lot of things that I do. I use a lot of those. There's six social psychology concepts that, that uh, I like to call the mind marking tools are sometimes called the weapons of influence that people use to manipulate you. And once you understand what they are, you, you see it all over the place and uh, you kind of understand how people make decisions, how their decisions are influenced. And you can kind of use that. You have to do it ethically. You have to use that. Uh, you can use these tools ethically and by ethically, I mean, without lying, um, like the creed thing was kind of unethical, right? You have to do it ethically in situations where it's naturally present. So I can kind of go and that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Now, I understand. I'm going to actually need to read that book, Influence, that you're talking about. But one of the things I'm curious to know of like, okay, going back to this legacy space, right? Government contracts, responding RFPs, et cetera. I get you on the right message for the right audience. How do you convince CEOs of these companies to invest the time and energy to understand that they're even having the right message? 
Like, how do you go about attaining that? You know, for me, I'm a big proponent of talking to your perfect customer, right? Get them on a podcast, you go to events and stuff, et cetera. But what are you advising, you know, the people that you work with to get that information? There's a couple of ways you can do. Um, one method is known as the comparables method. So uh, do you live in a house or apartment? Apartment. Okay. Your parents live in a house or apartment? Uh, or did they live in a house? Okay. So I live in a house. Um, so let's just say a kid comes to my analogy I give is a kid comes to my house and he says, Mr. Handel, I, I'm going to, I'd like to mow your lawn for you and I'll do it $30 a month or a week or whatever. And just so you know, I won the school spelling bee, very smart kid. And my response to that is, so what, (laughs) you know, I got a guy who, uh, mows my lawn. I have no idea what his name is. I just pay him. I don't, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, but he's been doing it since I've been here for like eight or so years. I'm not going to just go with this kid down the street. I don't know if he's going to even show up next week or, or what, you know, but let's say another kid comes to my house and he says, Mr. Han, I want to mow your lawn. I'll do it $30 a week. And just so you know, after I'm done, every time after I'm done, I'm going to walk around your house. If I see a weed, I'm just going to pull it. That way you can enjoy your weekend. Okay. Now you've got my attention. Right. That, that, that speaks to me. Right. And I bet you that same kid went to your parents' house and talked to your mom. That might speak to her too. Right. So that's called the comparables method. So if you look at two people that are similar, and I'm probably pretty similar to, to your parents, right? That the same kind of pitch might work for both of them. If I'm selling punching bags, the same pitch that will work for me might work for my neighbor, but it's not going to work for Mike because Mike is buying something different than I'm buying, when I, even though we're both, both buying this, you know, a punching bag, right? So that's, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is the harder way to do it, which is, is to work with the client or, or research the client, talk to the client, and determine, do, essentially do your research. In our, in our industry, it's called capture planning. You're doing your research about, you're capturing information about what the client truly wants. I think it's hard, right? Because people are like, it takes time. You know, like it's like, oh, you know, I can really jump on this call super quick. Yeah, I'll take their call. But versus taking that extra like 20, 30 minutes, maybe even longer to like really do some basic research um, on a client, you know, encouraging people to do that. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting book I'm kind of listening to right now. It's a very, very old book called The Trusted Advisor. And it's all about kind of building those, that relationship of trust and, and doesn't go, so, it, it talks a little bit about figuring out, you know, what it is clients truly need. And it does have similar analogies that I have, but, you know, going back to the lawnmower analogy, so many businesses do that what that first kid did. You know, they, 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 here's my service. And just so you know, we believe in 
clean energy or whatever, or whatever. Right. like a benefit they highlight a benefit they highlight you know something that's important to them or something they they perceive to be well everybody should want this right like my 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 trainer's like well everybody should want to feel good right but that's not what i'm buying right so that kid didn't do the time to understand his audience the people that that you know he he wants to buy he wants to buy his service where the second kid did understand i don't know how, how he maybe he talked to his parents you know and used that comparables method or maybe he just did some research and tried to figure it out you know that there's a reason that they hire business developers and salespeople is because it does take time and, and it is a job, you know, it's a very difficult job. How do you think content plays in your industry? So, you know, I found out about podcasts and right around the time I was researching podcasts, I came across the engineering podcast, forgot the guy's name, but yeah. he runs like, he's got like three podcasts. Anthony, yeah. Yeah, the civil engineering podcast. He's got this other one and stuff. And so, like, there's podcasts, people create video content. There's all this kind of stuff going on. But, like, in the government contract space, people are like, I'm just blocking and tackling. Like, let me just go back to that, right? So how are people leveraging content in your space? And, like, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, it, it kind of goes back to content is, is about... Jeez, I can talk about this forever. I mean, I, I sell primarily based on content, right? And there's a whole, I wouldn't say science, but there's a whole, if you looked at my series of emails, they, they follow a certain pattern, right? And part of that pattern is, is building trust. It's a whole another. It's a whole another rabbit hole. We could go on like how to sell things, you know, how to sell what, how to get to that right message, right? And how to convince people that you're the right person to to uh, to solve their problem. But for, from a standpoint of content, generally speaking, it's really about showing them what you know. In my experience, right? That's why I don't post things up pictures of puppy dogs or whatever, you know, I, I was at a conference in Baltimore for the week and a guy came up to me and he's like, Oh, you're Matt Hanna. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity, right? A LinkedIn celebrity. All I do on LinkedIn is through automation every day, it posts one of my old blog posts, right? Um, and people see that and they say, okay, he, this guy knows a lot about this particular topic. So it's really about showing them, you know, what you're talking about, right? And, and how we do that is, is teaching. So I worked for, I worked for a company for many, many years that really got their name or, or the reputation or started their business through teaching courses. And they taught, they actually had a government contract, which I, you know, Help them win a couple times for the National Highway Institute. And it was a training on how to avoid construction disputes, how to avoid and resolve construction disputes, right? And they went over, they went to various departments of transportation all across the country and they caught and they taught this course. 
Well, what do you think our biggest market for services was? That area. The transportation market, right? Because we were very successful when we showed people what we knew. Even though we were kind of teaching them how to do it themselves, we were providing them actionable advice that they could use. And when they needed help that they couldn't deal with themselves, they looked to us. And we still had to submit proposals to get these contracts. And we still had com competition to get these contracts, but being able to, 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 uh, uh, to show that we uh, knew what we were doing and they knew that we knew what they're doing because they were in our class, that went a long way. Let me, get, let me tell you another story. This was in Delaware years ago. We're going after, uh, I think it was a $2 million contract. And we had one of, we had submitted a proposal. They said, come in for an interview, right? They also interviewed some other firms too. And, and this is kind of the last stage of winning a contract. And I helped them practice. You know, I sat down with one, one guy, uh, a sub consultant we had, I sat down with him, basically script out, scripted out everything that needed to be said. And we had done our homework. In fact, we had got our hands on some documentation that explained the challenges that this client was having, right? So we made sure to pepper that in our, um, in our, in our, in our uh, proposal. And then we did a presentation. But when we went to the presentation, everything went off the rails. The guy I helped script the, the content for, he just completely talked about a completely different subject he went well over his time and the, the person in running the thing had to kind of be almost rude to stop him. They were fumbling over everything they were saying. It was the worst presentation that I've ever seen, but we won the contract. We won the contract because we knew the right message. And they actually even gave us questions afterwards. They gave us a list of questions here, answer these questions. We looked at them. We couldn't answer all of them. So we just answered as many as we could, which was not even half the list. But in the answers of those questions, we, we hammered home our main important points, uh, which was the right message. And we won that contract, even though there was an incumbent, somebody who had already had that contract before. So it all comes down again to the right message and the audience that can say yes. You've been creating content for since what 2009 is that what we said 2009 i feel like it was it was before that um but i think it was like i think it was like around 2007 but i mean yeah i mean i've been creating content really forever because part of what i do with proposals is create content to some do you degree. encourage your clients to create content yes yes uh, but again uh, uh, you know i always encourage people whenever they're going to write something to write something that's going to solve the problems of your potential clients. Yeah. I'll give you an example, right? I had plantar fasciitis a while ago, right? And it was a pain in the ass. Just quite frank. I type on you, YouTube and plantar fasciitis stretches, whatever. Sure mm -hmm. enough, this doctor duo, these uh, physical therapists from Podunk nowhere, right? They have this video, with, like a million views on like stretches for physical therapy. 
And it just reinforces again that idea of like your content, like you say, the presentation doesn't have to be the best, but like the message for the right audience, because they literally film these stretches on like an iPhone or something. But it was so point and center to the pain I was experiencing that like, you know, take my money. Right. Yeah. That content was like super valuable. And so I guess you're saying an early place for people to start because it can be overwhelming. Like, oh, I need to create content. What do I say? What do I talk about? And you're saying, like, start by focusing on, like, the pain. Write about pain. Show people how to overcome the pain, et cetera. Yeah, or how, you know, how you over, like, how, how you did this, you know? Like, I think that is a great example where that person that, that taught you how to do the stretches to, to resolve your plantar fasciitis, which I used to have and was the pain in the butt, you know? I've had, and I went, I, I couldn't get rid of it for the longest time until I did the right stretches, right? And I got rid of it. But that folk, they don't really have to sell you on that. They gave you that stuff for free. You didn't buy that. You just saw it on YouTube. But if there was something else that was troubling you and you went to that person's YouTube page and they were, they were you know, selling a, a, a supplement to help you with that, You've, you've, they've already earned your trust, right? Right by giving you this free information that worked. So you would be more inclined to buy from them because there's this, there's the, I wouldn't say relationship, but there's a trust built up there. Even though if they saw you walking down the street, they wouldn't know you, right? That, that's why I really enjoy podcasting, right? Because it is a little bit of a slower drip, right? It's not like direct marketing, like a lot of things. But man, when you start listening to people they almost become like that trusted advisor for you. So when you do have that pain point, you know, they're the ones you reach out to. And I know one thing you wanted to talk about too was you had a podcast and you told me to ask you why you stopped doing it. Yeah, so talking about, um, I don't know, let me just, uh, I don't know if I can even pull it up here, but I'll tell you exactly when I had a, I had one of the first, if not the first video podcast in the construction industry. It's called the Construction Netcast. And I'm looking at some of the videos now. I mean, this is from, from 14 years ago. I did this. You know, I'm seeing like 44,000 views on one of the videos. Um, 37,000 views. Um, the podcast itself had hundreds of thousands of downloads. Hundreds of thousands of downloads. And I stopped it. And you would think, well, okay, it's, wait a minute, you had hundreds of thousands of downloads. It's crazy that you stopped the podcast. That's pretty successful, right? By today's standards. But the problem was that looking back on that podcast, I still today see it as, as a failed experiment because ultimately I can't, I can only identify one even lead that we got. From that, and again, we were in the business of winning contracts for 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 construction services, right? So we went from there to focusing on the blogging, and the blogging was much better. You know, we I would we would go into clients' office and be like, "Oh, I read your blog," you know, where no one would say, "Oh, I listen to your podcast," and I think maybe. Part of it was it was a little bit before its time, 
but you have when you're looking at your you have to go back to return on investment you know and what you're trying to do with that marketing campaign if you will that, that you're that you're working on you really have to look at okay what's what's a big win here you know like how do i get the big wins how do i I, I was on, I was in an airplane, I was in an airport one time and I met this advertising agent, advertising guy, nice suit and everything. He was the advertising guy from McDonald's. And he said, Matt, the most important thing, I started talking to him and he's like, the most important thing you gotta understand is do what works and don't do what doesn't work. Sounds like such common sense, right? We all get right? guilty of that shiny object syndrome. Yeah, and, and we have to figure out in, in your business, if, if there's something that's working, do more of it versus like, okay, let's do all these other things. Let's throw everything at the, at the, at the wall equally and see what happens. And option one is working option, you know, two through 20 isn't doing so hot. That's not the right way to go It's figure out, okay, how can we double our efforts on one? Right. Right. So for you, it's like the podcast, you're, you're teaching people how to podcast and you're, you're, you're podcasting. And people might come to you to say, hey, Mike, I love your podcast. How do I get into this podcasting thing? You know, that um, that's working for you. So, you know, it makes sense to do more of that. I think when I first started Ironbound Media, right, I looked at the landscape and I knew that there were a lot of people suffering from exactly what you were talking about. You're like, wait a minute. I have all these downloads. I'm spending all this time on this podcast. And they were unable to monetize it, right? And people assume because, you know, I mean, you've had conversations about this via email, but people assume because they have all these downloads that that somehow equates to money in the bank account. But what I've been very intentional about is like, are you in front of, are even the right people listening to your show, right? Like, is there a lot of stuff out here that's like more of a vanity metric and versus stuff that's like providing real value to a specific audience that you want to be in front of? And like, I know for me with Dog Whistle Brandon, the way I monetize this show is I want to be a premier authority around veteran entrepreneurship, particularly from a branding perspective. Because I think branding is super important. So many people start businesses, but they're not even thinking about how they're differentiating themselves from the competition. So I look at this as a platform for me to come and share. I don't like to use the term thought leadership, but share my ideas, build my network, and also my learning. So just being on with you, I'm able to get immense value out of a lot of our clients that are in the AC space, right? So like, literally, I'm going to like, listen to this conversation, take some notes, look at some of your stuff, right? And say, hey, I had Matt Handel on. These are some of the topics that we went over. This is something that you should think about. And oh, by the way, if I come across someone that could benefit from your services, it's an easy introduction, you know? So I like to think of different ways to leverage content, but it's so interesting to you to like, like you had hundreds of thousands of downloads do you regret like stopping the show? Or are you glad like, hey, I'm glad we didn't do podcasts anymore? No, I don't regret it at all. Because again, it, it was it was the wrong allocation of resources. Right. Let me tell you another story about about um, metrics and and uh, downloads and whatnot. So, you know, I have this website, HelpEverybodyEveryDay.com, and. I've been through several different web hosts. And at one point I was having a lot of trouble where my website was just dog slow. And I was getting like 10,000 visitors a month, which is not, 
uh, Perez Hilton or, you know, it's not, that's not like a lot of, a lot of, you know, visitors, but, you know, I was happy with, with, with that at that point. And uh, so I used Google analytics to figure out, you know, how many people were coming to my site and I was like getting 10,000 people, you know, and I was, I was wondering why is my website so slow? Right. So I reached out to the, to the service provider and I said, I was talking to him, technical assistance. And I said, you know, here's the problem. I'm getting 10,000 visitors, you know, each looking at a couple of pages or whatever. The website is like dog slow. And he laughed and it's like, dude, you're not getting 10,000 visitors. You're getting millions of visitors a month. Because he was looking at the server records. And the server record shows everybody that's going to your website, which is, which is, whether it's a, a bot or, or anything. So, and Google's looking at something different. And, and Google's numbers aren't always entirely trustworthy. So we're at, we're at the mercy of all these companies that have control over what you see in regards to how many views or how many uh, visits your website has. So you only really have a, ever have a guess, a guesstimate of what kind of traffic you're getting. Let me give you another story. I'm sorry. I uh, published two books, one with the independent publisher and one directly through Amazon. And I always wondered, how come the independent publishing book is selling so much better than this other book? Worlds apart. And then I started wondering, uh, is Amazon showing me the true numbers? Because this other guy, he works with Amazon. He gets the, he knows how many books he submitted to Amazon and he gets paid for those books where Amazon just, just prints the books themselves and sends out and they control, they, they only know, they're the only ones to know for sure how many books they sold. And I have to trust their information. Furthermore, then I noticed, oh, it says now on Amazon for this book, it's going to take two weeks to get there. If you buy it, it's going to take two weeks. So they've made it harder for independent publishers to sell stuff through Amazon because they slowed the pipe a bit, right? But hey, you could buy the other book. You could get it tomorrow. So... There's a lot going on, I feel, with what numbers you're truly getting. It's hard to know how many books you're selling, how many website visitors you're getting, how many downloads you're truly getting, because you're really at the mercy. You don't really see the data, the raw data. You see someone, what someone else wants to show you. This is a fascinating conversation, and this is why I'm a big proponent of talking to people. I feel like I've learned more about you in this just last hour and the way you think based off those last few stories, because it, it makes sense, right? You've operated at a high level of content and engagement and stuff wasn't adding up. And it's just simple, just kind of look on the back end and you start finding stuff. And that's why you can't trust a lot of these platforms in a sense of how they're reported. And I think one thing our audience is going to be super curious about is in this age where it appears like maybe not your generation, but my generation and younger, these millennials, they're all competing for attention. Look at me, look at me, I'm so important. They all want an audience. 
And you know how hard it is to build an audience. And so I'm hearing you say millions of downloads on your website, hundreds of thousands of downloads on your podcast. The assumption is that you're printing money as like a content creator. You know, do you feel like you've done the best job of monetizing a lot of that audience? Well, first of all, I'll say that I'm in Motel 6 right now. <laughs> and uh, the guys on the knocking at the door trying to kick me out because I haven't paid my no. Um, have I made so how you determine this goes back to numbers, right? So I have the a better view of the numbers. So let's just say you have a you have a hundred follower, hundred subscribers to your email list. Let's just talk about email lists. Over the course of a lifetime, you can hope to convert 3% of them into clients, right? So that's the metrics. 3% is the metric. If you have a, something you're selling, right, and you blast out the campaign to sell this product or whatever, the metric there is a half a percent. So the initial push, if you're getting a half a percent of those people to buy, you're in the good space. In the lifetime of things, three percent is is you're 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 being average, you know, at three percent. My number is more than three percent, right? So from that standpoint, yeah, I'm 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 for what I'm selling, I'm monetizing pretty well. Here's another story. So one of the very first speaking gigs I did is someone brought me up to New York City to talk to people about how to build your career. And one of the things I said was people like will quit their job because the person next to them is making 50 cents more than them. Right? They're making 50 cents an hour more than them. I've actually seen this happen. But you have to think about what lifestyle do I want to live? And what money do I need to make to live that lifestyle? Right? What is a rich life for me versus, you know, what is a rich life for Mike? Right? So some people's rich life is they've got a butler, right? They have a driver that's driving them around. And, you know, you have to work in certain markets or in certain jobs or own certain businesses to, to live that lifestyle, right? I'm very happy with the lifestyle I live. To me, a rich life is I can go to the gym, you know, at, on Wednesday at 10.30, I can go to the gym for, for, for an hour, you know. If I worked at uh, Morgan Stanley or whatever, I couldn't do that, you know. So I have a flexibility. I could see my kids come off the bus. To me, that's a rich life. So I, so many respects, I've achieved my rich life with the help of my wife and and everybody supporting us. Um, so statistically, yes, I have monetized. I believe I'm living my best life, my rich life. And that's kind of what's important to me. I love my it. millionaire. Uh, not yet. Soon though. But I appreciate you sharing that. And that's even where I'm at with my agency. You know, the goal is not necessarily to be like you said, I, I'm on calls in mastermind groups where people feel guilty about working out in the middle of the day. They literally feel guilty. Like, I shouldn't be doing that at this time because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And so I do think there's something about, like, starting with, like, the why. Like, why are you doing this? And even myself, like, I think today I'm listening to the Simon Sinek video, 
because it keeps coming up over and over again. And even though I think I have my why dialed in, you know, life can throw you off it a little bit and you always have to go back and get recentered. And so I feel like I'm right there with you in a sense of like building a business is beyond just the monetary side of it. It's like, what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? And I know I was on a call with you once and we were like, hey, what's your schedule looking like the rest of the day? You're like, it was like 10 o'clock. You're like, I don't know. My kid gets off a bus at three o'clock. So from now until about three, and I was like, we laughed about it. But to me, that is important. That kind of stuff is important because you can't get that time back. And yeah. so I appreciate you coming on the platform today. I feel like it's got me a great opportunity to learn a little bit more about you. And one of the things I try to do with all our guests, even on the show is, you know, what's some actionable takeaway we can give our listeners that they can like work on now in order to increase ROI on their current marketing and branding efforts in their own business. Yeah, here's a great one. So talk to your potential clients, even if someone that doesn't, let's say, you know, somebody who buys something that you want to sell, maybe they go with, you know, someone else. Um, sit down with them, talk to them and ask question, ask this question, say, if, if you had to, had a magic wand, you could wave it around and fix one thing about your business instantly, what would it be? And just listen, listen to what they say. And then whatever they say, say, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And listen some more. Do that with 10 clients, 10, 10 people that buy what you want to sell. And from there, I think you get a pretty good idea of what it is they need, what it is they would like to buy, and, and, and why. Love it. Matt, how can people find out more about you? Where can they follow you at? Well, they could go to helpeverybodyeveryday.com. I know it's a weird name for a website that's about marketing, but uh, you know, once you get into it, you'll, you'll understand why it's called that. Again, helpeverybodyeveryday.com. I'm always happy to talk to, to veterans. Again, I work with a lot of veterans, so feel free to email me at matt at helpeverybodyeveryday.com. I'm always happy to talk, chat, anything about business. I mean, you know how I roll. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor having you on today. For all our listeners, do me a favor and make sure you subscribe to the Dog Whistle Branding Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter every week. So I would love to hear your feedback on the topics. And if there's something you'd like me to cover, either on the podcast or the newsletter, shoot me an email at michaelweirironbound.com or message me directly on LinkedIn. Also, I'll include a link to Matt's website in our show notes. Click the link, show him some love. If you are a veteran-owned business owner in the AEC space and need some help with getting proposals that win deals, uh, feel free to reach out to Matt, man. I recommend him. And again, uh, let's keep building an amazing company. So until next week, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy for veteran-owned businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by the Lion's Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. Thank you.